I want to share that we're continuing in a series, this is our second in a series using Adam Hamilton's book, Love to Stay, Sex, Grace, and Commitment. This is looking at how to strengthen marriages, but many of the lessons for it apply to long-term relationships and to other family relationships. And I, I think you'll find within this material a lot that's useful, no matter our situation in life. I also want to say that I'm working very closely from his chapter, so this is not plagiarism, I'm telling you up front. <laughs> uh, there's just wonderful material in here and you'll be hearing a lot of it today. And now Philippians chapter two, verses one through five. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, our God, thou our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is easy for people who care deeply for one another to still kind of get it wrong in how they try to connect. When I was 21 years old, I dated a wonderful man named John. John was helping to put himself through school by working the early shift at Evanston Hospital. He would go every morning and from 5 to 7 a.m., he was that guy who woke you up in the hospital and did your blood draw. Yeah, that's what he had to do. But you know what? It pays pretty well. <laughs> so every morning, John got up, did the 5 to 7 blood draw, helped keep him in school. Because he was doing the 5 to 7 a.m. blood draw, he became very adept at drawing blood and very knowledgeable about what works and what doesn't. The downside was that when John would see my arm, he would start to palpate. And then he would say, you have great veins. At which point I would say, sweetheart, that's great to hear, but just letting you know, if you want to compliment a woman's body, the veins aren't the part we're looking for compliments. <laughs> just note to you. So, <laughs> you know, we, we mean to do well, we mean to care for one another, but sometimes what we do and say, there's a disconnect. So today the focus is on what she wants, what he wants, and acknowledging about how, how people who really care deeply for one another can still miss each other in their expressions of caring with some very practical tips for how we can connect, how we can learn one another, how we can be more loving. And the scriptural guide for this is Paul's writing in Philippians about that need to move outside our own desires and our own, what works for us, and pay attention to the beloved or our deep friend or our family member in what they need, in what works for them. 
The first of the tools that he brings up is the, is the work of Gary Chapman in the five love languages. And I'm, I'm happy to say that Carol Fisher and Reverend Dan Skank will be offering a retreat later on in this fall looking at the five love languages. Really would encourage you to sign up for that retreat. It's a great opportunity to strengthen your marriages. But the five love languages looks at how each of us experiences love. And those five languages are um, words of affirmation, gifts, quality time, just spending time together, serving, doing things for one another, and touch and affection. Most of us have a primary and a secondary way of how we feel loved. And the way that we feel loved may be quite different from how our beloved feels loved. Uh, Adam Hamilton recommends that couples go online. There's a website, www.5, and that's the numeral five, fivelovelanguages.com. Take a quiz to find out your and your partner's love languages. It's easy to miss the mark on that. To, let's say my love language is uh, words of affirmation, then I'm always offering that to my beloved who may, that may not make that person feel loved. We need to be, pay attention to what the other needs, what will speak for them. He gives an example of how in his own marriage with his wife, Levon, they discovered that, that his, Adam's love language is um, words of affirmation. And Levon's love language is quality time. She just wants time with him. So Adam feels loved if Levon says, boy, you did a great job on that. Or when you acted in that way, that, that really made me proud to be your wife. Those words of affirmation really make Adam feel loved. But what his wife Levon wants is quality time. She just wants to be with him. When I read that segment of the book, I felt a little pang in my heart. Adam Hamilton is the pastor of our biggest church in the, in the United States. He is a wonderful, gifted pastor who leads an extremely large congregation and writes books and travels and speaks. And the idea that a man that busy is married to someone whose love language is quality time, I thought, I need to pray for this couple more. I mean, really, imagine the agony of that. Imagine if your sense of being loved is spending time and you're married to someone who's calling sends him away all the time, away from quality time with you. You can imagine the agony that could develop within that, how important it is to be aware of what the other person needs from us to feel loved. It's easy for us to get that wrong, and not only in our love relationships, but also in our family relationships. As I was reading this chapter, I was reminded of a situation for one of my dear friends. My friend and her husband really love very fine eating. So a really special night for them is to make a reservation at just wildly expensive top-of-the-line restaurant, get all dressed up, go have a very elegant meal with the place setting and the tablecloth and all of that, and they just love that. Now, they live some distance from her mother-in-law, from her husband's mother, and so when they would come into town, they would come and take his mother out for that kind of meal. And it'd be very expensive, it would take a lot of planning, but they would make this happen. 
Well, I remember talking with my friend after they had taken her mother-in-law out for that kind of meal, and my friend's nose was really out of joint. Turns out she'd been spending time with her mother-in-law, and her mother-in-law had been talking about her friend's sons and how, well, gee, Elsie down the street, her son came home and cleaned the eaves, and so-and-so down the street, her son came and helped clear out this, and this person, and my friend thought, we just spent $500 taking you to the Everest room. She was so ticked off. But what I realized was what she and her husband wanted was not what her mother-in-law wanted. She didn't want the fancy meal. That wasn't her need. Her need was, wow, I was widowed in my 40s. I'm here all along. You live quite far away. It would really help if you came and did something for me. That, she'd feel really loved. So this, the, my dear friend and her husband, they met really well. They were acting out of love, but they were addressing her with their love language, not with her. What she wanted was just, oh, could someone help me maintain this house? That would have meant a lot to her. It is challenging to pay attention to one another and not immediately impose what we like or what we want. I've experienced that in a long-term friendship with a dear friend who is a very high extrovert. His idea of happiness is being in a big group with lots of people. Now, I'm very social, but believe me, I am an introvert. I need a lot of time alone. I prefer one-on-one -on -one to being in a large group. And if I've had a lot of large group time, I need to go home and be alone and not talk. And that's been a challenge throughout the years of our friendship, finding that right balance of his name for a lot of sociability and my preference for one-on-one -on -one time or needing time alone. This became especially clear when we would be, we're part of a group of friends and we would be away on retreat for two or three days. At the end of being in a group of eight people or more for two or three days, I don't want to talk to anyone. <laughs> so I would drive home in my car without Bluetooth and I would be a happy girl. <laughs> I would put on music or I would put on a book on CD or I would just space out. I was happy. But I knew that my dear friend, who was a high extrovert, would get in the car and immediately feel so lonely. He loved being in that group of people, and as soon as he was alone in the car, he would get the bends. <laughs> you know, he would feel that deep split, and I knew that he would immediately get on the phone to our other friends who had Bluetooth or safe car phone situations. So I was happy not having Bluetooth. This worked. But if he got home from the retreat and still called me that night, I knew that that meant that none of our friends was reachable for him to talk to and that he was really lonely, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you know what? I love my friend. So it was a stretch, but he would call and I would pick up the phone. Now, I will admit that sometimes I had a time in my mind, like I can do a half an hour, <laughs> but you know, after that, I'm done. But we do that for people we care about. We try to be available for them in the way that they need, even if it's not what we need. And my friend also learned that when I was super busy, I often just wanted to be, just leave me alone. She's an introvert. She doesn't want you calling three times a day and checking in, just she'll be okay, trust me. That's how we connect, knowing each other's love languages, knowing uh, personality styles that'll help us 
Love the one another as the other needs to be loved. A second image that, that Adam Hamilton cites from Gary Chapman is the image of a love tank. Now, for this, imagine a gas tank. And think about how you maintain your vehicles. Now, some of you are people who are, you just keep your tank full. As soon as it gets below three quarters, you fill it up again, or maybe at a half tank, you fill it up again. Got very good habits about, you always make sure there's enough gas in the tank. Some of us, though, have been known to veer toward running on empty. <laughs> so I'm more likely to refill the tank when I'm at about a quarter full. And it has been known, as I am driving in different vehicles, I get to know how much gas is still left when you get to the E sign and the light goes on. And, and yes, if I'm that kind of person, as you can imagine, I have run out of gas. There we are. Our relationships are like that tank. There needs to be gasoline. There needs to be fuel for the machine, for the vehicle of your relationship to move forward. And, you know, three-quarters tank, you're fine. Half tank, you're fine. Quarter tank, you better be sure there's a gas station someplace nearby. When you're down to the E, you better get to a gas station right away because you can only get so far running on fumes and the vehicle's going to stop. It is easy for us to take the vehicle of our love for granted to think, oh, I'm, you know, we can run, we can run down at this end, we can be at a quarter tank, we can be at E, but we can get into real trouble and we can run out of gas. The other part of this analogy of the tank that's helpful that kind of dovetails with the love languages is thinking about what fuel is needed. I remember many years ago, my dad drove a car that was a diesel engine, and not every gas station had diesel, so he had to really pay attention to where he could get diesel fuel to be able to keep his car going. Sometimes there are special things a relationship needs. We need to pay attention to that, not get down to the E sign before we try to refuel the vehicle of that love. Even more helpful, listed in the chapter, at least to me, is the image of a love bank. So think now not of a gas tank, but of a bank account. And the place where this analogy helps is how you can make deposits over time. So early on in a relationship, oh, are you making deposits in that, in that account? Early on, you're spending a lot of time together, you're complimenting one another a lot. If you're a teenager or older, you're texting all the time. And, and each of those expressions is a deposit. So early on in a relationship, there are a lot of deposits into the, into the bank account. And you may come into the next phase of your life with quite a lot in your bank account. You've really given a lot to one another. And, and, and those deposits would be things like expressing love in your partner's love language. All of those add more to that account. But it's also true that as we are adding to the account, we are making withdrawals. So an ad a withdrawal might be something like, oh honey, I, can you take care of the kids tonight? I've got to work late. That's a withdrawal. Or, gee, I know you need to talk, but I'm just too tired. I just can't pay attention to you tonight. That's a withdrawal. So you are putting deposits in the account as you express love and affection and exp you know, express that care for one another, 
but you are making deposit, you are making withdrawals from the account when you lean on that relationship. One of the things that I've seen way too much as a pastor and as a friend is couples who put a whole bunch of deposits in early on in the relationship. They stay up late talking, they go on special trips, they're just all sorts of deposits. But then once they start having kids, all the deposits go toward the kids and not toward each other. And the deal is, whether or not you have children, the marriage still needs deposits. And so I have watched with deep sadness as couples who started making their deposits into their children, but not into their marriage, watch their account go lower and lower and lower because their marriage isn't getting a fed and their account gets lower and lower and suddenly the kids leave home and the parents look at each other and think, I don't know who you are and I don't care. Or I don't know, I, you know, we have you, have you have made too many withdrawals on this account. The gas is empty and the car is damaged. Wrong fuel for too long. It's heartbreaking to see that happen, how easily people aren't paying attention to the balance of their account, put in a lot of deposits early, and then just coasted for a long time. I fill my gas full, but that doesn't mean I can go on that gas tank forever. It's got to be refilled when it starts getting low. Too easily we coast on a tank full of gas from the early time in a relationship. Don't keep making those deposits of love. Brothers and sisters, being a follower of Jesus is a school in loving. And whether we live that school out in married life or in long-term romantic relationships or in long-term friendships and family life, we all know the experience of the energy it takes to maintain long-term relationships. It requires caring for one another and caring for another person in the way they want to be cared for. It requires extending yourself even when you don't feel like it. Now, that doesn't mean having no boundaries, but just seeing when you can do that extra thing that will speak to what that person needs. Paul invited us to consider others more than ourselves, to consider the interests of others more than our own interests. It is so easy to get caught in our own selfishness and our own desires to assume that what serves us is what serves others. But through the power of Christ, through fervent prayer, through our community life, we learn to release our selfishness, to release that desire to do only what I want and need, to extend ourselves to the other, to love them, to have long-term relationships, honoring what he or she wants, caring for one another in Christian love. Thanks be to God. Amen.